want to stop today and consider the world in which we live. Lord, it's uh, a world that seems filled with trouble and tragedy, with wars and rumors of wars, with disasters, Lord, of enormous proportion that we don't begin to comprehend. Many of those things, Lord, predicted in the Word of God as the last days wind down, Lord, before the rapture of the church and the coming of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we're not ignorant of these things, but we're living through them and we want to have a proper response to them. We want to look out upon our world the way you looked out upon Jerusalem and wept over it, knowing the destruction not of property but of people, the destruction of souls. As in each case, Lord, many pass into a Christless eternity. May it encourage us, Lord, in our own efforts locally, and by locally I mean just where we live, to invite folks to church, to invite them to Christ, to live out the Christian life, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to think about things that are eternal and to set our heart and affection on things above, not the things of this world which are so fleeting. Lord, in the hurricane, we see that an entire city, an entire population base really wiped out in just a moment of time. How quickly things can change. And Lord, we want hearts to change. We want people to change. To pass from death to life, from darkness to light. As they are confronted with and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us, Lord, as you see fit. May we be vessels of honor unto you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. All right, let's go ahead and open our Bibles now to Luke chapter 20. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26. The title of our message this morning is, Image is Everything. You'll see why in just a moment. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and that you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image, whose inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Let's pray together. Lord, how wonderful to read words that you spoke. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by the Son of God, preserved for us down through the ages, Lord, so that we can declare them today as the very words of God. And I pray that we would receive them as such into our hearts, in our lives, working them out, Lord, as we walk in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all who agree said. Amen. There are a lot of strange images and inscriptions on a one dollar bill. None of them causes as much argument as the unfinished pyramid 
with the eye in a triangle over it. Quite honestly, it creeps me out. There are those who insist that the pyramid and the eye are cultic images that reflect the influence of Freemasonry on our early government. They cite the fact that among the committee members who designed it, Benjamin Franklin, at least, was an avowed Mason. Others insist that the images have a less sinister, more universal symbolism. For them, the Egyptian pyramid is a symbol of strength and duration. The 13 steps indicate the original number of U.S. states, and the 13 steps which lead to an unfinished summit indicate the future growth of the nation. They say that the eye is simply the eye of providence, a symbol of God's watchfulness over our nation. For the sake of argument, let's say you're a Christian and you believe that the images are borrowed from the occult. The eye in the pyramid is evidence that sinister conspiracies abound which will impose a new world order on an unsuspecting population. The Freemasons are planning this takeover themselves and are working with European bankers and the Illuminati. If that's the case, why are you using dollar bills on a daily basis? Shouldn't you, on principle, refuse to use cultic currency? A few individuals or groups might take it that far, but for the most part, even people who believe the most radical versions of the origins of those images still use the money that they are printed upon. It's not always easy to know where your loyalty to God draws a line that you can't cross. To help you in those times of deciding whether to obey the government or not, Jesus said this, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We'll organize our thoughts about these verses around two points. Number one, render to Caesar what you owe. And number two, surrender to Jesus what he owns. First of all, render to Caesar what you owe. I hear that the producers of the reality show Survivor are thinking about doing a Survivor Corcoran State Prison. Richard Hatch, the first million dollar winner on Survivor, was indicted Thursday for failing to pay taxes on his winnings from the CBS reality show. If convicted of all counts, he faces 75 years in prison. Hey, they're serious about collecting taxes, I'll tell you that right now. I'm not sure they're going to do Survivor Corcoran. I don't know if it would really fly, but no one likes paying taxes. Overtaxation has led to revolution against the ruling government on more than one occasion. First century Jews hated paying taxes to their Roman oppressors. It did lead to a revolt that ultimately destroyed Jerusalem. There were three basic types of taxes. Number one, there was a land or a produce tax that took one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all fruit or wine. Second, there was a poll tax that was collected whenever a census was taken. It was one day's wages, a denarius, and was paid by everyone aged 14 to 65. It was also known as a head tax because they counted the heads in the household 14 years of age and older, and you paid one denarius for each head. Then there was a customs tax that was collected at ports and city gates as toll for goods that were transported. Rates there were 2 to 5% of the value of the goods. 
All these taxes taken together totaled over one-third of the person's income. Add to that, the tax collectors had a commission that they charged you, and so there was a lot of money being expended on taxes. As a result, especially of the poll tax, because it related to the individual paying for himself to be a part of the government, a movement known as the Zealots began trying to revolt against Roman rule. They considered paying taxes to Rome an act of infidelity to God. Their terrorism is one of the factors that led to the siege and the sack of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This was, therefore, a loaded question to ask. It seemed a no-win situation for Jesus. If Jesus answered no, it is not right to pay taxes to Caesar, he would be considered a zealot, sympathizer by the Roman government, and be subject to arrest. If Jesus answered, yes, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, he would be alienated from the common people. The religious leaders wanted Jesus arrested. They would have settled for him being alienated. Instead, Jesus blew their minds. In verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. They wanted to seize on his words when they should have let his words grip their hearts. You know, about once a week, ever since I've been in the ministry, somebody I'm talking to tells me about a family member or a friend that they've been sharing the Lord with. And inevitably they say, but they know the word of God better than I do. They know God's word backwards and forwards. They grew up in Sunday school. They used to do this. They used to, I mean, they really know their Bible. And so when I share with them, uh, they, they come back at me with the word of God and it, it, it frustrates me. Well, they are simply spies who are pretending to be righteous because they're not interested in the power of the word of God to change their lives. You know, the Word of God is exactly that. It's God speaking to man. And it's worth listening to. It's worth attending. We're not the ones to seize on the words and to begin to rip them apart and to tear into them. Those words, if our hearts are open, will grip our hearts. Fill us with wonder and awe, fear of the Lord, a passion to serve the Lord. And so don't be, don't be intimidated by people who say that they know the Word of God better than you do. Hey, a brand new believer who only knows John 3.16 is way ahead of those people if they're not walking with the Lord. And so don't be intimidated. They're only spies pretending to be righteous. Verse 21, Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that what you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. This is obviously false flattery because we've just been introduced to these guys as spies who are trying to trip Jesus up. I don't need to tell you that flattery is an evil thing. Someone has defined flattery as saying something to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. I like that. It's just the opposite of gossip. Gossip is saying something behind somebody's back that you would never say to their face. Don't do either of those things. Just say the same thing no matter whether they're facing backwards or forwards at the time. And you'll be all right. They thought they had Jesus softened up and so they sprang their trap. 
Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is interesting. This happens to uh, about, I don't know the frequency, but every, every now and then I'll get a phone call. Somebody's interested in the church. The latest one I got, it was a while back. Someone's, uh, they were on our website, found our website. And so I'm talking to the guy. He, he says, hey, I, I found you guys on your web. Man, you have a great website. Your website's fantastic. It just, it's got this information. went on and on about the website, you know, just really buttering me up. I like our website. And so he's, man, the great website. And, but I knew anytime, I mean, I've, you know, I know something's coming. Finally got to the point where he was reading some of the Bible studies and our doctrinal statement on the website. And then he launched into what he really wanted to talk about, that he was this Jesus-only kind of a heretic who wanted to argue about the Trinity, or the triunity of God. And so I began to talk with him a little bit. And after about five minutes, I could tell, hey, this is, this is not a sincere seeker. This guy is just going through Calvary chapels or different websites, and he's calling whoever will talk to him. I could hear him flipping pages, you know, and, and using arguments. And so I said what I normally say to guys like that. I say, I'm going to hang up now. I'm just letting you know so you don't think I'm rude. Five, four, three, two. And, and I hung up. Uh, and so now I would have talked to the guy longer if he had called up and said, Hey, I'm on your website. I believe Jesus only. I think you're a heretic. I want to argue with you about the Trinity. All right, let's talk about that. But, you know, to come in the back door, oh, you've got such a wonderful church website. I see, you know, if it wasn't that you were such a heretic, you know, that kind of a thing. I mean, you know, forget that. And so this happens all the time. It'll happen in your life sooner or later. And so Jesus is asked in verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to little Caesar or not? (laughs) Taxes, taxes. But uh, anyway... By lawful, they meant, was it in accordance with God's law? Now, by the way, this is an interesting... There's so many interesting things here, but think about this. They didn't really care about the question. It is a good question. We're going to talk about that. But their idea was to use the Roman government to destroy Jesus. And so they'd already decided that it was okay to be a part of the Roman government. I mean, they weren't trying to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted the Roman government to engage itself in, in, in arresting Jesus. And so this was hypocrisy and, and lies all the way. Now, they asked this question to trap Jesus, but it is a good question. God's people in every age struggle with their relationship to human government. In the case of the first century Jews, it was a severe struggle. Caesar's Rome was an oppressor. It was an occupier. Paying taxes to Caesar supported a government that held them captive. I mean, just on a basic level, they paid taxes that paid the salary of the Roman legions that held them captive. Now, on the surface, it would seem that a revolution was called for. Every few years, there is a zealot movement within the church. Believers and professing believers cite something from the Bible and they withdraw from some or all civil responsibilities. Usually paying taxes is the beginning. They point out that your tax money, at least a portion of it, is spent on things that the Bible condemns. And so, is it lawful to pay taxes to the city of Hanford or to the county of Kings or the state of California or to the federal government? 
It's a question that you must answer every day as you transact business and every year on April 15th. Jesus was about to put the issue into an entirely higher perspective. Verse 23, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. Now, there are a couple of things to notice before we get to the answer itself. First, in a sense, Jesus makes them answer the question for themselves. He embarrasses them. The fact that they could produce a denarius proved that they believed it was lawful to use the coin and to pay taxes with it. They were using Roman coinage on a daily basis. If it really bothered them on a spiritual level, they would already have refused to participate in anything connected to Caesar's Rome. By making them produce the coin, Jesus established that they were willing to benefit from the government even while they were critical of it. Now, I would never defend the Roman Empire, but there were things about it that preserved and protected life and liberty. Today, a lot of folks who sound like zealots and advocate things like not paying taxes, they're really hypocrites who do not understand their calling to be good citizens of their government. They take all of the benefits of good government and they don't want to have any of the responsibilities of that government. And so they pick and choose. And usually they're against anything that costs them anything. And they're for anything that gives them something. And it just that's just simply the way it is, unfortunately. Now, second, in the ancient world, it was believed that coins actually belonged to the person whose image and inscription was stamped upon it. I don't know if you think of your money that way. Do you think of your dollar bill belonging to George Washington or by extension to the federal government? I think it probably does belong to the federal government. But I mean, you think of it as your money. This is my $10 bill. I'm going to do with it what I want. I mean, you don't look at it and say, thank you, United States of America, for the privilege of having a $1 bill. I'll go ahead and buy my medium coffee with that. Otherwise, I'd be in coffee withdrawals. You know, I mean, you don't thank the government. You believe you've worked hard and you've earned it. And this is different from the first century. The Jews would never have thought of the denarius as belonging to them it belonged to caesar and they had to use it to transact business in caesar's rome let's say you go to adventure park this afternoon i haven't been there in a while but they probably still use tokens so they use to a lot of amusement parks use tokens the tokens are only good while you are on their property but while you are there you can use them to your enjoyment now it's not a great example because in the case of the jews being oppressed and occupied by Rome was no amusement park. Hey, thank you for this denarius. Let me give this to you, Roman guard, who's beating me. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't very fun. But it is a good example of what they would think about the coinage. A denarius was a token that belonged to Caesar, and it was necessary to enjoy or endure life in Roman-occupied Palestine. So having established that they all had and they all used Caesar's tokens, then Jesus said this, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Wasn't that easy? Doesn't that make perfect sense? 
The coins and currency they used already belonged to Caesar. And even as an oppressed people, even as an occupied people, they benefited from Roman government. They should therefore render to Caesar, which means pay him what is due. Now, Jesus is interesting. There's another episode in the Gospels where his disciples aren't sure if they should pay taxes or not. And Jesus sends them down and they get a coin out of a fish's mouth. And the interesting thing is Jesus didn't have this problem because he didn't have any money. During the time of his ministry, he really didn't have anything. He had to go fishing for a coin. He had to get it miraculously out of a fish that had swallowed it earlier that morning. But all of these Jews, they could each produce a denarius. There's a lot of interesting pictures here. Now, Jesus wasn't just talking about taxes. He, used the, he didn't say, render to Caesar the taxes that are Caesar's. He used the word things. He took it to the higher level of responsibilities and roles and rights as a citizen of heaven, living as a citizen of an earthly government. And this is a good technique. This is something to remember. All the time as Christians, you are asked a question that is in a small realm of understanding. I don't mean small in terms of insignificant because the person asking it is very interested in it. Why did my baby die? Why did my brother get killed? Why did my husband do this or my wife? Why the tragedy? Why the sorrow? Why the suffering? It's a significant question for them. It's not a small question, but it's a limited question. It's limited to the scope of their life. And you're going to get wiped out. You're going to get ruined trying to answer what God is doing in their life because that's a microscopic part of the universe that only God understands. He is doing something because all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and that are called according to His purpose. But you don't know. You don't have any idea what it is. You better admit that right now. You don't know what God is doing in a person's life, why He allows a suffering or a tragedy to occur. But you can step back and take it on a higher level And you can say, I don't know about your trouble, but I can tell you about these things. I can tell you about sin entering into the human race. I can tell you about death and disease and destruction because of sin. And I can tell you that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to die for the sins of the world, so that all of that could be redeemed and made right one day. And so we want to have that higher perspective. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. God's people on earth hold a dual citizenship. You might have a passport from the United States or some other country, but you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. As a citizen of heaven, you have a responsibility to respect and obey human government. 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governor, or to those who are sent by him, it's right there, for the punishment of evildoers. Honor all the people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. When Peter wrote, the church was being persecuted, the king was Caesar Nero. Weird guy. Hated Christians. Burned them in his garden. Filled them, you know, and put them in sacks and used them as torches. And just when you're in church wondering how you should respond to that, Peter writes and he says, I'll tell you how. 
Have fear of human government. Honor the king. Live as a good citizen. Oh, man, what are you talking about? Peter knew what it was. As a citizen of heaven, you should have a role to play in affecting your government. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercession and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so your role, I know for sure, is to pray for government, those in authority, to pray the that the Lord would be honored and glorified in and through them, and when he's not, to continue to pray for them. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent this morning, but there is a spectrum uh, you know, with extremes on both ends in terms of your personal involvement in government. There are people way on the one end who don't even register to vote. They have no contact with, human, with government at all. And that's extreme. Obviously, you should register to vote. You have a voice, you know, those kinds of things. There are other extremes, and, and the extremists wouldn't say that it's an extreme, and that's how you know they're extremists, uh, that dedicate their entire time on earth to political causes. And, 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 and probably the answer is somewhere in between. Each of us has to search our own heart and conscience and figure out where we are on that spectrum. Because we want to be involved in human government, and we are blessed to have a government that we can be involved with. But everybody has to answer that question for themselves. And if you're really activated about being involved in government and issues, then go for it. Do it. But don't think everyone else is also called to that. God can deliver by many or by few, and often he wants to do it by few so that the glory goes to him and not to human beings. And so somewhere on that spectrum, all of us are. We all have a role to play in affecting government. The primary role is to pray for it. And then as a citizen of heaven, you have rights to claim within your government. When the apostle Paul was falsely arrested and put in jail in the city of Philippi, he claimed his rights as a citizen of Rome. Later, when he was again arrested, as, uh, he appealed his case to Caesar and got free transportation to Rome for his trial. Now, I want to point out, in both cases, Paul only used his rights as a Roman citizen to further the testimony and witness of Jesus Christ. city of Philippi, he and Silas are arrested, beaten, and thrown in the Philippian jail, held in stocks, that's where they had the jailhouse rock and, you know, they were singing and the gates opened and all the prisoners were escaping and Paul had them all stay and they witnessed to the Philippian jailer. He and his household got saved. Next morning, the authorities came to let Paul out of jail and while they were unlocking the, uh, the, the uh, whatever it's called, door, it's not a door, what is it? Cell door. While they were unlocking the door, Paul said, oh, hey, by the way, guys, did I tell you, <laughs> it slipped my mind, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, man, these guys had a heart attack. Not literally, but figuratively, because you can't beat a Roman citizen and throw them in jail overnight. They had civil rights. You could do that to a Jew, but not to a Roman. These guys were in severe danger of being prosecuted themselves. Now, why did Paul do that? Why not tell them at the beginning? Because he wanted a favorable testimony for the church that he was leaving behind. 
he had something over those authorities now. They're not likely to persecute the church because Paul's liable to call his local congressman and say, hey, by the way, I got beat up in Philippi. You might want to look into that. And so it was to further the gospel. When he appealed to Caesar, it wasn't to save his own skin. He knew that God wanted him to get to Rome. It was a desire that burned on his heart his whole ministry. And then finally he understood, oh, this is how I'm going to get to Rome. I'm going to get to Rome as a prisoner. It's going to take a long time, but it's free transportation. And along the way, he was able to minister to Roman governors and, and rulers of various regions. King Agrippa, Felix, not the cat, but another guy named Felix. Ultimately, the tradition tells us that he spoke to Caesar Nero himself. And so Paul said, I'll use my citizenship to preach the gospel. So he wasn't really worried about his rights. So many wrongs were done to Paul. He only used his rights when they furthered the gospel. So remember that. Now, Jesus didn't make God and government equal. The way his answer reads and is worded, it puts Caesar in his place as subordinate to God's ultimate authority. Render to Caesar what is Caesar, but overall, render to God what is God's. When obedience to God conflicts with obedience to government, go with God, no matter the cost or the conflict. Now, throughout the centuries, Christians have agreed on three situations in which you must obey God and disobey government. Now, one of them, you must uh, disobey the government when you're asked to violate a command of God. Second, you must disobey the government when asked to perform an immoral or unethical act. And third, you must disobey the government when to obey would go against your biblically trained conscience. Now, having said that, the real issue here is where do you draw that line? Where do you draw the line? And Christians have and will always disagree on exactly where to draw that line. For example, Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore refused to move a Ten Commandments monument from the state's Supreme Court building. So he was moved, removed from his position. It's a just... I think it was this year or last year, many of you read about that. We applaud him, but there are many Christians who follow the government's restrictions and do not display the Ten Commandments on public property. There are many Christians who follow the government's restrictions and do not start the day with prayer. Are they wrong? Be careful how you answer because it could be you. Are you wrong? And so where do you draw that line? We have to make those determinations for ourselves. My answer to resolving the issue of when to disobey would be twofold. Number one, first of all, remember that Christians are called to a profound level of obedience to government. They should be the very best citizens of every city, country, and or city, county, and country. You should be extreme in law abiding. Before you talk about when to disobey God, the example that we have is that you should profoundly obey the law. It should be the last possible resort for you, not just a loophole so you quit paying taxes. And so obey the law. Put a Jesus only bumper or Jesus saves bumper sticker on your car. Not Jesus only, obviously. Heretic! <laughs> Jesus is the way, Jesus saves, and then obey the speed limit. That's what this really means. And we laugh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that speed limit. That's a good one. That's a speed suggestion. 
I don't want to park on the speed limit and get all over that, but you really should. I mean, really, really true. You should be Johnny law-abiding citizen. You know, if, if, uh, if you had a Christian community, it shouldn't need any policemen because everybody's obeying the law. And so we want to be solid law-abiding citizens, all the laws, even the ones you disagree with, which are most of them. Now, once you're in, once you're in tune with that, then second... Study the life and learn from the examples in the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel was taken prisoner first by the Babylonian Empire and then by the Medo-Persian Empire. In both instances, he rose through the ranks to high positions of government. He worked directly for two of the meanest tyrants in the history of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, King Darius of Persia. I mean, these were bad men. Way worse than your supervisor. Nebuchadnezzar one time called for the wise men. He says, look, I've had a dream. It really troubled me. I need you guys to interpret it. They said, hey, we're, we're, on, we're ready to go. Tell us the dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you're so wise, you should know the dream and the interpretation. And they said, with some indignation, no king has ever asked such a thing of his wise men. And Nebuchadnezzar, I think with a cynical smile, said... Oh, okay, right. Yeah, I'll note that. And if you don't do it, I'm going to cut your heads off. So get about it, would you? And Daniel was able to give the interpretation. He rose up in power. So these were bad men. Darius is signing weird things into law. Anybody who prays, I'm going to throw into the lion's den. Hey, that sounds good. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds great. Daniel ends up thrown into the lion's den. And so these guys practiced a profound obedience to government But they also, Daniel and his friends also faced decisions in which they had to obey God and disobey the government. And so when and how they disobeyed, those would be a good model for you to follow. Verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Whenever unbelievers really listen to Jesus, their questions are answered and their arguments are silenced. It is so important to simply give the Word of God to people. I'm not saying that you can't explain the Word of God or argue it or present it, but, but sometimes we talk more than we let the Word of God talk in a person's life. Sometimes I think you have to, as salesmen would say, just go for the clothes and just give them the Word. You don't need to tell people you're doing this because chances are they don't know the Bible. And so just... You know, don't say, you don't need to say, well, in John 3.16, it says, just start talking as if you're thinking of it. Hey, John, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What are you talking about? Well, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one. What? Hey, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Oh, what, do you, what can I do about that? And then, well... You go on and on. Just give them the word of God. Because there really is a power. Not a mystical, magical. It's not a potion or a voodoo thing. There's a power in the word of God to soften hardened hearts. And I think we would be better off sometimes just talking in in the word of God. Maybe we should take a Sunday and call it just Scripture Sunday. Where You ever play that game where you only talk in movie titles or song lyrics? Come on. You've done that. We could do that with Scripture. Probably by about noon, you'd be saying, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, or something like that, because it'd be, 
I know a, a real popular one on Scripture Sunday would be the woman whom you gave me made me do it. And then the women, of course, could say, well, the serpent, you know, so but I mean, try it sometime. But really, the, the, I'm just trying to be funny to emphasize the fact that we ought to give people the word of God. Sometimes we really don't even give people the word of God when we're sharing about Jesus Christ. Jesus quoted the word of God, the living word of God, God in human flesh, oftentimes said it is written or here's here's a scripture for you. This is what I'm doing. Read this in Isaiah. Here's a passage from Jeremiah. We ought to just give people scripture. And I think we'd have a greater success. Now I want to return for just a moment to Jesus' question about the denarius. He said, whose image and inscription does it have? The denarius was a small silver coin. On one side there was the image of Caesar and this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Whoa. Now, the coin belonged to Caesar because it bore his image and inscription. It illustrates for us a great spiritual truth. You and I, if we are Christians, we belong to God and therefore ought to bear his image and his inscription. We want to surrender to Jesus what he owns. I know it's 1130, but we did have the video. Let me tell you what I would have told you if I had more time. Here we go. If Jesus owns you and you belong to him, you ought to bear his image and his inscription. How do we bear God's image? There are many ways to answer that question. I think the one that makes most sense to me is to realize that day by day, God is working in your life to change you to become more and more like Jesus Christ. You see this everywhere in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul the Apostle is giving you an image. He says when you, when you look into God's Word, it's a mirror that reflects Jesus Christ. And when you see his face, the more you see Jesus day by day reflected in that mirror of God's word, the more you become like him, the more you look like him. Romans 8:29. for whom he foreknew, talking about Christians, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. God who began a good work in you will complete it. That work is to make you more like Jesus. First John 3, 1 and 2, we used to sing this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. God begins changing you at the moment of your conversion to Jesus. He promises to continue changing you throughout your life to be like Jesus until you go home to heaven to be with the Lord and your change is complete. All that God asks really from you is that you would cooperate, that you would put yourself in places and in situations that allow him to make you more like Jesus. How do we bear God's inscription? Again, many ways to answer that question. One that comes to mind is these verses in 2 Corinthians where Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, you are our epistle 
known and read by all men. You are an epistle or a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And so Paul pictures a Christian or describes a Christian as a living letter, as as such that if people look at you, they can read about God from your life. Whenever people see you or hear you, they are reading about God. Here's the two things they should be reading about. The promise of righteousness through Jesus Christ and the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The promise of righteousness is how to get right with God. That's our primary message. People who are not Christians, who are on their way to a Christless eternity in hell, they need to know how to get right with God. They need to know that they're sinners, but that there is a Savior. That He died for them, took their sin, and offers them His righteousness so that they can go to heaven. And so they need to see that promise of righteousness. And then they need to see the power of a relationship. And again, that is seen in your everyday life as you just go through life and people read you. What, what's their take on you? How are you going through this? I remember when I was still, I still wasn't very old as a Christian. My brother, my next oldest brother, he had come to know the Lord. And it's a long story, but basically I was having a difficulty that day and he was helping me with it. And, and, and he looked at me and he smiled. And I said, what, what are you doing? What, what's so funny about this? He goes, he goes, I'm just trying to see how a Christian goes through a problem like this. And I wanted to punch him. That's how you go through a problem like that. But it's interesting. At least he was honest about it. And that's the way people are. They, if you, you should tell them you're a Christian. You're nothing to be ashamed of. We're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And then people start to read you. They read your body language. They read your facial expressions. They read your language and all the things that you're going through. They don't always read you right. Sometimes they're nearsighted or farsighted and they say things that aren't true. Leave that to the Lord. But to the extent that you are able to, you need to bring forth a solid testimony because that is the only Bible many of those people will ever read. Render to your government what you owe. Surrender to God because you are owned. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're wonderful to hear. They're even better, Lord to bring into our hearts and to begin to live out. And so I pray that you would cause each of us, Lord, to be excited about being citizens of this great government. Not a perfect government. Not at all. But, Lord, all of us, I think, would rather be here than just about any place else other than heaven. I pray that we would live up to our responsibilities and roles and rights as citizens of the United States of America subordinate to our citizenship to you as citizens of heaven as people who are journeying through this earth looking for a city whose builder and maker is God a city that has solid foundations the new Jerusalem where you are building our home Lord for eternity make us good citizens Lord help us to make the adjustments necessary and then just in our testimony as Christians Lord use us Make us aware of the fact that we bear your image and that we bear your inscription. Whether we like it or not, we do because we're children of the Most High. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's stand together.
Some of the guys will be here to pray with you, to pray for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, you want to know how to know Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin so that you don't miss out on this wonderful life, this abundant life, come forward and they'll share with you. If you just need prayer for any reason, something going on in your life that you'd like touched and covered by prayer, come forward and let these guys pray for you. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.